Here we are with another episode of the 212 Podcast, a podcast designed to give you an insight into the industry through the lens of the people in it. Our guest today has worn multiple hats in the industry, but primarily worked with the artists themselves as well as the management of production and consulting. The illustrious names he has worked with knows no end, but include Placebo, Björk and New Order. Most of his days are now filled uh, with his role as the Director of Shooting Star Productions. Please welcome our next guest today, Chris Taplin. How are you and where are you today, Chris? Hi, Daniel. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I'm actually sitting on my boat, which is currently in uh, Kalamata Marina in the Peloponnese in the south of Greece. I've been here for a few months and we're locked down. I could think of worse places to, to, to be in the world uh, locked down. Uh, how did you end up there? A couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I decided we want to go and do some serious sailing. We sailed for a few years before that. So we set off from the UK with the intention of heading towards Greece. We thought it'd take us a year. We spent the first lockdown in uh, in Spain, and then we uh, carried on this last summer and uh, got as far as we did make it to Greece. Just pulled into Kalamata Marina, and uh, lockdown happened again, second wave and all that. So um, we've been here ever since. It's a nice place to be, nice marina. Got some decent Wi-Fi so I can carry on working and stuff. And, uh, yeah, we're just waiting, champing at the bit, get yeah. going again. with some proper sailing. I just, some of the, uh, when I was looking through the, the list of people that you've, that you've worked with, quite staggering the, 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 the list. How did it start out for you? So, um, when I left school, I went to art college and I actually studied a combined degree in, uh, in fine art and music. And um, when I came out the other end of that, I fell into a few different bands, and then one of the bands got a deal with Virgin Records, as it was at the time. I was never very successful with that, but um, during one of the phases of, of that, the guy who was managing us had another band, a younger band, and he'd spotted that I was sort of good in the technical side and organising stuff, and he asked me if I wanted to take him out on the road and show them the, the ropes kind of things. We'd done a few tours by then, you know, we'd had tour managers and, and whatnot, so but, yeah, give it a go, and uh, kind of fell into it and you know it's one of those things you, you do a job and suddenly you're getting calls about stuff and uh, yeah 25 years later I'm still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember your first uh, your first one that you did? Do you, do you remember that you obviously said there that you uh, that originally it was the the artist side of things in, in terms of you being an artist but um, do you remember the first event that you that you managed? The first really proper tour I did was um, a band called Salad who were an English, well, they still are actually, English and Dutch indie band. Very good. Um, I liked working with them quite a lot, did quite a lot of shows. And yeah, there was, um, you know, you learn on your feet with this industry, don't you? Certainly the sort of stuff that I do, there's, um, there's not much you can do in the way of learning. I mean, there are more courses now than there certainly used to be, but at that stage, it was really just get out there, start doing it and keep your eyes open and be on the ball. And that's, you know, always standing in good stead, I think. So that was, that was the starting point and did a few little smaller bands like that. And then, um, yeah, you know, I got, I got some quite lucky breaks. It's just often people who are trying to break into the industry ask me, well, how do you, how do you get gigs? And it's such a difficult question to answer because really when I look back at it, it's all through just being in the right place at the right time. And because I'm, you know, you do a lot of work, it generates a lot of work, um, which is not the answer anybody wants really, but that's kind of how it's been for me. So do you think it's a, a, there's an element of luck, but there's also an element of, of knowing your shit, basically? Yeah, I think it's, I think you obviously need to know what you're doing. And um, there's a lot, you know, particularly these days, there's, there's so much at stake for shows, you know, financially. It's just, you know, it's, it's a big business, certainly the kind of stuff I've ended up doing. 
So yeah, it's there's, there's an element of you need to know what you're doing. There's an element of being a grafter and an element of luck of falling into the right thing to do. You know, um, I found my way into production management fairly early, and that's the right job for me. You know, I'm much better at that than I was. I tried my hand at tour managing and stage managing, and you know, I can do those gigs, but I'm I'm not that brilliant. Whereas the production side of it, I can I know I can nail that. Was there a moment you realised that, that it was the industry for you? Well, I kind of knew, I always knew I wanted to be around music in some way. Funnily enough, though, as I mentioned, I was in bands when I was a kid, um, and I've always really enjoyed playing music. But when I actually got into a band that got a record deal and it suddenly became a way of making a living, I kind of didn't really like that very much. Um, you know, I preferred it when it was just art. Simple as that. So, um, yeah, I felt much more comfortable in a, in a more pragmatic role in the industry. Um, you know, I, I certainly have never, since those days, harbored any ideas of, of being a professional musician again. That's not something I want to do. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, I didn't know it was what I was going to end up doing, but it felt right when I got there. Uh, the, the kind of inner emo or melodic morose me, uh, died at some of the people you've, you've worked with, kind of the Anthony Johnsons and the placebo standout for me. Um, and, does it take a certain someone to work with people like that or a certain personality type? I think that it's probably quite helpful that I do have some background as a musician. You know, those kind of artists do need, not, not kid gloves by any means, but you need to be em- empathic and you need to understand what they're going through. You know, so they're, they're really sort of bearing their souls and, uh, you know, the, knowing what to do to support them is, and also stopping other people from doing things that doesn't support what they're doing. Is a, is a key part of what I do, so I, I think I think that's been helpful to me having that background as a player. Who are the, who are some of the best artists in terms of the artists I guess that you aspired to work with, and and maybe you got got there and worked with them, and you were like, oh wow, this is almost you know idol territory. Well, Bjork, obviously, um, you know she's uh, an amazing artist and so creative, and uh, yeah, stunning shows as well, really really exciting stuff. New Order, I really enjoyed just because. We've got so many fantastic songs, just brilliant. Um, yeah, you know, there's, uh, the, the, the list is quite long, purely because I'm quite old, really. But uh, there's plenty of them out there, and they, you know, they're, they're, I'm very lucky. There's very few that I haven't enjoyed working with. But yeah, I would say, you know, Björk was a high point. I was actually stage manager for Björk most of the time I was doing that, rather than production, which was not my ideal role. But I would have, um, I've done anything to be on that tour, really. <laughs> Yeah, I think it gets like that sometimes when there's there's something available and you want to you want to work there. It's um, you, you kind of put yourself out there, don't you? Also, a good friend of mine was looking after production, so um, it was a it was a nice place to go to. How did you get into uh, the other side of management in the the consultancy, and then I understand you've worked at Glastonbury as well, and then there's also been some some management um, services and production that you've that you've done as well as. Uh, kind of that liaising with um, or working with bands. Yeah, it's after I'd done about sort of twenty odd years of pretty solid touring, I was kind of thinking about how I might move forward from there. Uh, basically, I wanted to not do so much work on the road, you know, because all my work had, had been out on the road for months at a time. You know, the tours got bigger and bigger and longer and longer, which was great to be you know successful in that way, but. You know, it took its toll. Uh, you get a bit older and it's, it's really hard to do those 6 a.m. rigging calls and that kind of stuff after a while. Um, so I was looking at ways to sort of just diversify what I did a little bit. So I worked for a few different festivals as a way of kind of getting me out of that. 
So I uh, worked for Big Chill for a while and uh, also Green Man, which is a fantastic smaller festival in, in Wales. Really great, really great little event that. And uh, then stuff at Glastonbury. I started out at Glastonbury looking after the park stage technical side. And then um, I got moved up to the other stage, which I did about, about four or five years, I think I did there. Or I called it a day. It's a, it's a tough gig, Glastonbury. You know, it's a huge event, difficult environment to put on live shows and really enjoyed it and taught me a lot as well. On the other side of the, of the fence, I've also been looking for work outside of touring and I, I, I got in touch um, with Universal and they were looking for someone to take care of their tour support activities and also their um, 360 provisions, which is so that these days in recording contracts with the, with the major labels, uh, the, art, the artist will get paid a tour support fund, which someone needs to manage from the label side, which would be me. Uh, but also, once they become successful and make a profit live, then um, the label will collect a percentage of that profit, and that's also something that I'm loosely involved with as well. At Glastonbury events, did you work in the Emily Evis or the Michael Evis era, and, and how do you think that changed with that, that passing of the guard? Um, I've only worked there working for Glastonbury in the Emily period, so it's a little bit hard to uh, to comment I mean, obviously, Michael's still around, very active. You know, he's, uh, he's in his 80s now, but you wouldn't know it. And uh, he's great. He's a real troublemaker. He loves to throw a hand grenade into a room and then shut the door. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, they're a very interesting family and uh, great people. And a, just an amazing event. You know, it's, it's astonishing. After I started working there, you know, everybody around the world knows that festival. And whether they've been or not, they think it's the greatest event in the world. It did me a lot of favours working there, and I met a lot of great people as well. Did you learn anything there that you didn't know before? No, I wouldn't say that. I think um, it probably I had to be more flexible. Um, you know, you just have to give and take the whole time with Glastonbury. It's, it's an imperfect world trying to do festivals in a in a sort of either in a mud bath or in a, a desert or and either way. Even if the weather's perfect, it's still you know in the middle of the countryside in and a load of beautiful hills, and it's not the ideal place to put on a, a festival, apart from the fact that it works brilliantly when everything comes together. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's stretching, but it's, it's, I don't think there's anything particularly new there. It's just there's a hell of a lot of it. How hard is it? I mean, it's a kind of rhetorical question, really, because we, we just know, uh, being in the industry, but how hard is it just to sustain an event or a company for, for, for that long? You know, it's just... It seems like people turn their heads too quickly these days and, and trying to keep an event or, or a management company or, or, or anything really is, it seems like it's becoming harder and harder to sustain it for a longer period. Yeah, definitely the, you know, the attention span of people and the desire for, for the new is an all time high. It's, it's, it's tough, you know, and I would never want to be in the promoter's game. I'm not clever enough to do it and I don't have deep enough pockets either. Um, you know, I watch people at work doing that kind of stuff and trying to trying to build events. And I mentioned um, Green Man Festival, which that's a great case in point. You know, that's, that's built up over the years and now regularly sells out until the last you know, last period when it's had to not go ahead, obviously. Uh, but, you know, the, it's kept its core values, which I think is important. It's set up to be one thing and it's carried on being that and hasn't tried to reinvent itself every year. Uh, I guess that's that's helpful so people know what that brand is. How is, how is Green Man different from other festivals? It's it just has a very personal feel to it. You know, the it's it's 
I think I can't remember what the capacity is up to now. It's about twelve thousand the last time I worked there, I think. So it's not that large, um, and it has a lot of the same people go every year. So there's sort of a sense of community about it, and I think that's what really holds it together. And it has a vision of what its kind of music is as well, which is sort of the alt end of sort of folk and uh, psych and that kind of stuff, and that um, has a particular kind of audience. And yeah, it just it gels every year. You know, you, people are not just always smiling at that festival. The primary part of the industry that you've worked in, it, it seems, is is a lot to do with that touring um, side of things. And you know, talking about sustainability, how how has touring changed since you started to to kind of now? I think it's become a much more professional business than when I started. Well, maybe that's just me. <laughs> 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 I mean, certainly, you know, the amounts of money at stake are, are huge now. You know, there there is no room for mistakes. Yeah, it's a, it's a much the technical side of things is so much more involved than it was originally. You know, with the advent of video and all that kind of stuff, and you know, now I've moved in a world where you know sets move around and that kind of thing. So lots of hydraulics and all that kind of stuff going on. Yeah, it's um, it's come on you know, leaps and bounds, and yeah, I think people are have much higher skill levels than when I started. That's for sure. Do you um, think it's changed for the better? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. Sometimes I feel like all the energies that are put into creating these huge shows are actually taking away from the from the real interaction of, of humans when, when they make music in front of an audience. Um, you know, it's a weird thing to say when you've got my job, but um, I always go back to when I first heard or went to live concerts when I was a kid in Hitchin, where I was born, which is just north of, of, of London in Hertfordshire. And it was when punk was happening, so I could go to the local technical college, which had a student union bar and there'd be bands on. And it was just the best thing ever. You know, when you're 16, 17, you know, we go and see bands close up, like, you know, Susie and the Banshees or Dr. Feelgood, something like that. Real, that was, that was, that was a proper life changing moment for me, those, those shows. And they were pretty much every weekend from what I can remember during term times. And, um, yeah, I was very, very lucky to have access to that. And yeah, that's, that's what, you know, kindled my initial interest and, and, and still fuels my current interest in, in love of music. Do you think it's become a little bit kind of less authentic and a bit too polished? I think it probably has, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with the advent of, you know, there's so, there's so much playback goes on at shows now. And I rarely do any shows that haven't got an element of playback involved. And it's quite a rarity to go out and just you know, be with a band that just stands on stage and plays their instruments. From from when you started to, to now, how do you see the music industry changing and shifting from the the present to the future as well? Given, in light of the situation that we're in currently, how do you think the music industry is going to pivot and change in the future? Well, I think uh, on the record company side of things, they, they actually got pretty lucky in that the you know the whole uh, move across towards the streaming culture meant that their business pretty much carried on as, as it was and in fact thrived during this last year. Um, it's the difficulty really at the moment, I think, is for artists starting out. Um, you know, in our part of the world, we've got this Brexit stuff to deal with, which, you know, I think the, the kind of tours that I do, we can deal with that. You know, we've got the infrastructure, the people and the, and the money to deal with the things that are being thrown at us. But uh, be, a, be a new artist, you know, wanting to go out on your first you know, early days touring, just jumping in the van, seeing if you can pick gigs up in Europe when you get there. Those, that's all gone. Uh, that, that means where's the next set of talent coming from? And that's, that's the biggest issue for me. 
uh, you know, this, the, the glory days of, of just being able to jump in a transit van and go to Europe have gone for us. Um, so, yeah, what happens next? I don't know. I mean, the, it's always been key to the development of, of British music to go into Europe and absorb those cultures and be absorbed by their cultures. And it's a, it's a shame that's going to be more difficult at the lower level. How do you think that, how do you think Brexit will actually affect touring? It's a little bit hard to tell at the moment because obviously no touring is going on. So, you know, we've been doing lots of monitoring of the situation, trying to keep a, an eye on what's going on. But until the, the reality is that all those countries that make up the European bloc do have control of their own borders and the right to say who can be there to work and what they have to have to be there and work in terms of visas or work permits, that kind of stuff. They always have had. So it kind of depends how they apply that. Um, it's starting to become a little bit clearer now. Some countries have said they're going to want us to have a visa for every person who goes. It can last a certain period of time and it costs this much. And this is how long it takes to apply for it. Other countries, um, Netherlands and Germany, and I think France as well, have said they won't be applying any any visas for work periods of less than 90 days. I think that's the last thing I heard. So, you know, it's, it's a question of monitoring the situation. It's going to keep on changing. Quite a few countries haven't really made their mind up yet because they've got bigger things to think about, quite frankly. The other changes to do with Brexit, really, are uh, Carnets, which that's not much different. You know, Carnets always existed if you were going to go into Switzerland or into uh, into Norway. Uh, so now you just do the Carnet at the, at the French border. One slight problem that does seem to have come up is that previously a single Carnet could cover a whole tour. Now it looks like every vehicle that travels out on a tour has to have its own separate carnet. So the cost of carnets for big tours could increase enormously, you know, potentially from maybe two or three thousand pounds for a carnet for the whole tour to something in the region of twenty to thirty thousand for you know, eight or ten vehicle tour. And, so that's and, and for people that don't know what carnet is, what what is a carnet? Um, the easiest way to describe a carnet is it's a passport for equipment. And what it allows you to do is export equipment into another country uh, and it's kind of so you don't sell it basically you have to bring the same stuff back it's a, it's a temporary import bond you've crossed probably a lot of countries of your, I mean you're in Greece now uh, and touring kind of takes its toll you, you're probably away quite often and, and uh, you know sometimes it's seen as a little bit of, uh, of luxury where you're going around but I'm, I'm sure it does does take its toll and um, how many cities have you crossed off the list, and and do you still feel that sometimes when you when you're touring, where you just kind of feel like, oh, I just want to stay in one place? Now the difficulty with I mean, touring is, you know, it's, it's hard work, but on the other hand, it is luxurious, and you're very lucky to be in that situation. You know, I have travelled the world, and I've been around it many times. God knows how many cities I've been, so I wouldn't <laughs> even take a guess. I have no idea. It's, it's an inordinate amount, that's for sure. Although I've never set foot on the African continent. Uh, at this point, um, and I've not never toured, I've never done any shows in India. It's something I would like to do, but I'm um, pretty much yeah, most of the rest of the places I've been to that where you can do shows. Um, I think the thing with, with touring is I love the travel. The problem is being away from home. Uh, you know, some some people are you know they literally do live their lives out of a suitcase. But if you have a life at home, then that's what that's what can take the toll. And I've certainly been on tour with people who have young families and that kind of stuff, and it's incredibly hard for them. You know, in these key moments in their children's lives are happening and they're, you know, stuck in a sticky club in Berlin. Do you find that with, with the artists as well? Yeah, definitely. I don't think when people, you know, start writing songs and forming bands that are, are really 
thinking that's what they're going to be doing or you know or know anything about the reality of going on a you know year long album campaign tour it's a, it's a big undertaking some of the the artists that we've we've already spoken about through throughout the uh, episode just got a just got a three three b's here and I just want an answer from you four but so biggest baddest boldest who is the biggest artist you've worked with i guess for you no one else but just the the you where you were like wow i'm i'm in the presence of um someone that i really love um and aspire um or or love and and, and love to to kind of look up to um the baddest gig you have been a part of and and i'm not talking about baddest as in samuel l jackson baddest uh, i'm talking about the actual worst gig that you've been a part of um and the boldest as in the most extra artist that you've been around someone who has that presence of someone like a, a prince or a um morrissey you know well actually um although it's you know i wouldn't have said that um simply Weber was really my kind of music but yeah, Mick Hutnell and Simply Red. He's such an amazing singer. He really is super talented, and he does great shows. He's a you know an incredible professional. He gives out, and his voice is as good as it was when he was a kid. I don't know how, but it is. It's just he's, he does astonishing shows. I really really like what he does. I was a convert actually. <laughs> I feel like I've been that with with, with a lot of uh, a lot of artists actually. Uh, the baddest gig you've been a part of. The one that you kind of, you know, still sticks in your memory as a little bit of a sore point. I've never had any real disasters. I had a, I'm not going to say who the artist was, but I was in uh, Moscow with an artist doing it. We had two nights. Uh, it was a fair-sized club. I think it was about sort of 3,000 capacity, something like that. And we had two nights there. Uh, and the artist um, couldn't complete the first show. Uh, which caused all kinds of problems. And I basically ended up with um, some very large men who I think were probably carrying guns in my hotel room later that night, uh, wanting me to confirm that they were going to go ahead and do the show the next day, which was um, a bit of a clinch. <laughs> I'm assuming they're Russian Russian guys. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they do it a little, might do it a little bit differently in other countries, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think... I think that was, I think it was that show. If not, it was another show in Moscow where we got offered, um, the promoter said we, they couldn't pay us and offered us a load of, um, alleged, alleged Rolex watches. Did you, did you check the, uh, the engraves, engraving? You didn't, didn't even need to, mate. They (laughs) (laughs) They're really authentic. Um, and the, the boldest, I guess, is the most extra person that you've seen, the one who has the most presence, you know, when you walk into a room, you're like, oh, that's... I'm gonna, I'm gonna sound like I'm saying this because I've actually ended up managing him now, but Justin Hawkins from The Darkness, he, he is just the most electric performer ever. Lovely, gentle, sweet guy, but when he's on stage, he's out of this world. Incredible performer. How did you get, how did you get involved with them? Well, I was, um, they, so they, they blew up really quickly in the early 2000s, um, mostly out of the UK. You know, they had a number one album, big hit singles, um, and it went from nothing to everything really quickly. And their, their touring team were kind of got a bit outgrown by the rapid pace of progress. Um, you know, they literally went from playing in little bars in London to being in arenas and their guys couldn't deal with it. So I got brought in for carpet production for their arena touring, which I did for five or six years, I think. And then uh, Justin had a bit of an epi and um, ended up leaving the band and various things happened. 
and it all sort of went away and I went on to do other jobs and um, then they got back together I think it was in 2015 or 16 and um, they uh, tried out with some other managers and I did a little bit of work on the production side um, eventually they, they got rid of their managers and um, asked me if I'd do it and they didn't have to ask twice so I love, I've always loved that band and they're just a great rock band they're really really lovely people and you know they they looked after me for a number of years so I thought well I can look after them so I've been looking after those guys for about five years now. I formed a management company with my wife, Polly, who specializes in press and PR and that kind of stuff. And, um, another colleague that I met through Universal, who's, uh, actually his background is a, as a music lawyer. So he takes care of all the contractual side of stuff. And, um, I deal with their live business and their record company stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, I really love doing that. It's, um, it's not something I particularly want to expand, I don't think. Um, I'm not really looking for other artists to manage. It's a tough job, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. But I've enjoyed it, and it's given me another string to my bow, and means I don't necessarily have to pick up touring work the whole time. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. really enjoy it. They're a lovely band. Uh, you mentioned there what, a, what a, a, a mixture of talents that you probably would need as well. You've got your partner who has the PR side of stuff. You've got someone who works in, in law, and then you've got yourself who has that artist management background. That must be such a good combination to bounce ideas off of. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's great. I mean, it's obviously, having all that stuff in-house is very cost-effective as well, um, You know, a, particularly with um, my, my colleague Will, who looks after the legal. So... He can do a lot of the legal work up to the point where the contract needs to be signed when it has to go to a lawyer because they have all the insurances and that kind of stuff. So that saves a fortune for artists. You know, you spend so much money on lawyers getting contracts done. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, the, the major part of the dancers business is, is live, which is something I know a lot about. So I would take care of all of that. And to be honest, you know, my, my sort of media and PR skills aren't all that brilliant. So it's great to have someone to take care of that as well. And it keeps the family in, family in business. So, uh, yeah, all is well. How do you think, um, when, when's it looking like, uh, things will be up and running again in terms of, uh, the live gigs? Well, I think we're going to see some stuff. And you know, there's, there are, there are talk of, you know, obviously Leeds and Reading festivals in the UK have said they're going to go ahead. There's talk of various other festivals who want to do it as well. I think the Isle of Wight is going to try and do something. I have some Simply Red shows booked. Uh, to do in uh, October, November. Fingers crossed on that. Hard to say at this point in time. Those have been rescheduled from last year already. Really hope they happen. Uh, I've got a Darkness tour scheduled in November, December, which I'm quietly confident about. That's in the UK. Um, and the vaccine rollout has been surprisingly good there. So fingers crossed we can get back into a room with lots of fans and get all sweaty again. I really, really hope so. I think there's so many people just just crying out for that that feeling of being with people. Yeah. Well, I know the um, there was there was a, there was a worry in the industry about people's appetite for live shows after all this stuff. But um, I know that you know, Reading and Leeds sold out in like, two or three days. The appetite is obviously still there, and in fact, if anything, it's amplified massively. So I think it's, it could be a bit of a boom period. I mean, it's the difficulty is what do we face in terms of what's left of our industry? You know, how many of the staff and crew that you know have always been around doing stuff are still going to be there for us how many of the supplier companies are going to be there um and you know how the heck is it, are they going to be invited in terms of their own staffing levels and that kind of stuff just booking venues you know like it's so hard to book a venue for next year at the moment um if you haven't got stuff in place now you're probably not going to get it you know you'd be looking at sort of fourth or fifth pencil for 
any decent kind of, kind of venue. So that's, that's, those are going to be challenges, that's for sure. But I don't think selling tickets will be that hard. Yeah, I was I was watching something. I can't remember what it what it was on actually. I think it might have been the last leg, but they had this futurist lady on, and she said after the Spanish flu, there was something like treble the amount of venues that were created and theater uh, theaters that were created within that period of time after the Spanish flu because everyone had been so starved of of being around each other that they wanted everything everyone to come together. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we saw some of the same effect this time around. I mean, it's been a pretty intense time, you know, for for everyone. I mean, you know, who would have who would who could have seen this coming? I suppose some people probably did, but it certainly wasn't me. And I didn't expect to have spent over six months of the last twelve in lockdown. I and mean, it's just unthinkable. Yeah, what's the um, what's your uh, what's your favourite venue that you've worked at, and one that you're looking forward to getting back into? Oh, so many. I mean, I I really love Brixton Academy, um, just because I've seen so many great shows there. But um, yeah, Red Rocks in the States—that's a fantastic place. You know, just looking out of the valley behind it. I mean, I'm lucky. I've ticked off, you know, most of the most of the big famous venues around the world. You know, I've done Sydney Opera House and uh, Madison Square Gardens and the Budokan, places like that. You know, which are amazing when you go there. You know, these, these sort of legendary places and. I got here. I did it. Here, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. What's the one you think you've visited the most? I wouldn't be surprised if it's Nottingham Rock City. What kind of venue is that? That's a club. It's um, it's about fifteen hundred. It's an independent club. Um, it's not part of the sort of mainstream network. Self-promote. Really good people. Put on great shows. Look after you. Really nice venue. Yeah, it's been there ever since I started doing this and. Uh, you know, I used to pass through pretty much every UK tour I do with whatever bands you end up going into there. It used to be, um, the local crew used to be Hell's Angels, um, which always livened up the morning. And, uh, yeah, really one of those classic sort of sticky floor places. Um, you know, not, not that brilliant facilities, but just a great, great gig. Um, none of the audience are very far away from the stage. And, you know, it's in the Midlands in Britain and it's just, you know, it's like, Around there, they just love rock music. So if you've got a rock band, it just it's, every time you went there, it was just a great night out. It's so funny for for germaphobes out there. Um, everyone would hate the idea of sticky floors, but everyone in events seems to remember the uh, the venues and places that they've been to that that do have the stickiest floors. Yeah, it can be a bit queasy first thing in the morning when you load in, but uh, <laughs> it's all part of the character. You're talking about the you know the simply rare, the darkness, you know, established artists um uh, is there any new artists that you you've seen on the radar that you that are ones to watch out for no i, I, I it's it's a bit of a weird one for me i'm very divorced from the the sort of um the startup end of things now um partly because a lot of it's moved online and i'm just not that digital a person and partly because i'm too much of an old git What's your what, what's how far into technology have you got? Have you got Spotify? I do have it. Um, I don't really ever use it. <laughs> I did. Re- I did. Um, I was looking at some um, some statistics of what I listen to because most of it's you know because I'm travelling all the time these days, so most of it's on my computer, and it's not even on the cloud. It's actually on my computer, and I discovered that nearly all of it, <laughs> everything I listen to is from the seventies. <laughs> 
it's it's funny with with Spotify as well, is because conceptually it's actually an amazing platform. But I mean, in terms of artist value and 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 money that goes to the artist, it's pretty weak. Yeah, it is. It's 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 not really helping the situation. I mean, it's it saves the music industry, you know, as in the record company side of the music industry. Um, you know, it's pulled them through after almost destroying them. Um, it's also had to turn the corner now, but it's not, it isn't great for artists. You know, it requires so much mass to earn a living from that. You know, you've got to get so many hits. It's just, it's almost impossible to achieve. So yeah, the, you know, that, but in, in a way that's good for us in that the, you know, it means that the live business has to keep going because that's how people make a living these days, especially when they're starting out. But, um, you know, the thing with Spotify, you've got to remember is that they really sell advertising. Um, they're not really a music company. And advertising is, is booming. Yes, very much so. You know, at least, you know, people, uh, you know, don't have many kind words for the major record labels, but, you know, I, I work inside, or I used to work inside those buildings. Um, I've been inside in them for, a, for over a year now, but those places are full of people who love music, at least. I don't really know with Spotify. It's a bit hard to tell. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of algorithms going on. I'm sure there must be genuine music fans in there as well. But, you know, people really try and create stuff at, at labels and, uh, and have creative ideas. Um, yeah, so, as you can probably tell, I'm not a massive fan, but I don't know, it's, uh, it's all part of change and there it is. It's not going away any, anytime soon, I don't think. Do you remember the first album you, you bought? Or yes. record? Absolutely. How could I forget? What is it? <laughs> it was, um, The Who, Live at Leeds. Yeah, right. I still absolutely love. That's the first album I bought. The first single I bought, which was a few years before, was um, Starman by David Bowie. You must have had a little bit of an, a taste for music to have those two as, you, as your first albums. Who, who influenced you with wanting to get into music? Well, it was around at the time. You know, in, the, in the sort of um, mid-70s, uh, there was DJ John Peel on the radio who's, who just had a late night show I think it was five or six nights a week I seem to remember it being on a lot anyway and I used to listen to it religiously and he'd, he'd play a lot of stuff in the sort of 60s and 70s art, the arty end of stuff he'd play punk rock and all kinds of weird things uh, I heard, heard my first ever dub record uh, was Sly and Robbie an album called Taxi on his on his show and yeah you know I, I used to tape those shows and then listen back to them and you know analyse the music and you know bands like Wire uh, he used to play a lot of them later on the fall and things like that, which is all oh, really interesting stuff. Absolutely, you know, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing half the time. But when it came to the Who, I think um, they had a great logo, and I'd seen the. I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to buy some music. I had had, had records before that had been bought for me, um, which weren't so tasteful. I can promise you. <laughs> but the actual first, my first two purchases, are, you know, two records that I'd still have to listen to right now, uh, which is a bit of luck, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, think, I, I seem to remember asking a friend of mine at school who had an older brother who I knew had some Who albums, which was the best one to get, and I think he recommended either that or either Live at Leeds or Meaty Beaty Big and Bouncy, which was a compilation. Did you did you get to see any of those the first albums you bought? Were they the kind of first bands you got to see as well? Um, there was, I mean, the Who weren't doing that much at the time. I, I never saw the Who, although I did work in... Um, 
the old Pi Studios for uh, made an album there once, which was um, Pete Townsend's place. But there, I mean, there are other bands around who I liked who were touring. I remember going to see Rush at the Hammersmith Open, as it was then, when, when the Twenty One Twelve album was out. That was um, the first of the big rock show I'd, I'd seen, I think. I think that was in 1976. I could be wrong. Could be 77. Um, but I was doing a bit of a double life then, so I, I really liked my rock music. But on the other hand, I really liked punk as well. Uh, so, yeah, so just sometimes we're going to sort of Camden and stuff to see bands playing, in, you know, punk bands playing in pubs. And sometimes down to the big posh venues like the, like the Odeon, see the, the big rockers. Good times. So many band members with massive personalities as well. When you're working with fans, what's the weirdest rider you've got? I don't know. I haven't thought it was really that weird, to be honest. I mean, you know, I've, I've witnessed, I'm seeing, I was doing a show with the Darkness supporting Guns N' Roses and their backstage was just ridiculous. You know, there was, there were rooms full of snooker tables and exercise bikes and, Huge video game screens and all this stuff, and and we were there and we you know watched all these guys grafting away setting it all up, and um, and Axel Rose turned up and kind of he looked in every room to make sure the stuff was there, and then just went to his own room and stayed in it. So it's like all this stuff got built, That's, and huge cost, no purpose whatsoever. Just an ego thing. Yeah, I can have it, so therefore I will. How do you find managing uh, the egos of, of some band members that you've worked with? It's not quite so much a question of managing them, it's a question of managing yourself, really. You know, don't get wound up by people. And, um, you know, that it's, it's a tough life, I think, standing in front of thousands of people, you know, being adored. <laughs> Surprising. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it actually takes a lot out of people. You've got to remember that, you know. And very often, people who are very creative are quite fragile as well. So I think you have to be understanding of what they go through. I've never really fallen out with any artists that I've worked with. Um, in fact, I can't, I can't think that I ever have done. So yeah, I think it's, you know, just remember it's all about them. What's the, what's the best thing you've got out of the industry? Shit loads of money. <laughs> <laughs> now I've had a great career. You know, I mean, I've loved every minute of it. Um, obviously there, there were, there were, there were those 6 a.m. Rigging calls that weren't so fantastic, but uh, no, you know, traveling the world's been fantastic. Seeing great music, being at great events, you know, the, the, the big festivals, you know, I've done stuff like Big Day Out in Australia, which I, I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, you know, going to South America. I, 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 after a while, I learned to make good use of my time if I had days off as well. You know, I quite often got into doing things like um, hiring a motorcycle and just going out for a ride. So, you know, I've, I've, I've ridden in Chile. Out into the Andes, uh, into um, out behind LA, into the desert there, which is just fantastic. Uh, I've ridden in Japan, I rode up to from Tokyo to Mount Fuji, just going to museums, stuff like that. You know, really making the most if you do get a day off, and there aren't that many of them as a production manager, but if you get it, make the most of it. And is it is it lonely, or is it just you can't wait to get away from people because you've been around them for so long? I don't find either of those things, to be honest. I mean, I've generally found touring folk to be really interesting, very capable people who are generally a pleasure to be around. You know, there's the, there's the odd bad apple, but uh, not many of them, surprising. You know, for a, such an unregulated industry, which very often attracts people who are, you know, don't quite fit in somehow. 
know, because it's, it's really got, the touring business is a bit like the army without guns. Um, it's very regimented and the people inside it are, are quite sort of, um, quite odd generally. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's surprising that it works, but it does. I, I've, I've made such good friends in the business and yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I don't know how but that's changing a little bit. It's a bit hard to tell because, you know, obviously there are people I've known for yonks now. I've been doing it for so long. I'm not sure whether people have quite, there's, there are quite the same characters coming through. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of big, big names in, in the crew side of things and the touring, touring arenas that, uh, you know, they're just really interesting people. And I'm not sure if that's the case, but perhaps it's just because I don't know the, the guys so well. Is there anything when you, when you, you mentioned the, the, uh, the motorcycling and, and, and the things that you do when you, when you are around, uh, different locations. Is there anything you, a lot of people who do do touring, they kind of collect different things as they go through. You know, I spoke to an artist the other day who goes to vintage shopping, um, places, every, every place that he goes to. Did you ever go to a record store or, or anything like that when you were in these different locations? Well, certainly when I was, when I used to do a lot of touring in the States, um, record shopping out there is just fantastic. You know, there's such huge secondhand stores. And also it's, it's kind of died off now, but when I first started going out there in the, in the sort of eighties and nineties, you could still find a lot of interesting instruments in the, in the pawn shops. So I'd definitely go be around looking for those, you know, looking for that fantastic sort of, you know, 5,000 quid guitar for $23. Not that I ever really found one, but I did find some interesting stuff. And old electronics, stuff like that always interested me as well. But no, I don't really, co- I don't really collect anything. It's been, um, a whole array of things that you've, you've done within the industry. And, and, you know, we've talked about some of the pros and cons. And, uh, I wonder if, I wonder if you'd change anything if you could speak to your younger self, younger Chris, before you were getting into the industry, uh, if there's anything you would give him advice on. <laughs> yeah, well, even even with this distance of time between me now and me then, that's actually still quite hard to answer. No, I mean, I don't think I've kind of screwed it up too badly, really. So, uh, yeah, just <laughs> keep your head down, mate. <laughs> and what about anyone getting into the industry now? Would you advise it, or and and what advice would you would you give? Yeah, I do get asked that question quite a lot. You know, I, another thing I've done bits and bobs of is um, going into colleges and teaching stuff to do with production and music business, and you know, particularly budgeting and that kind of side of stuff. And you know, you always get asked, "Well, how do I break into this, and and what's it like?" And it's, it's so hard to answer that question. I don't think there is a, a definite routine. Unfortunately, a lot of people are now getting training, and some of the training is really very good, um, but. I'm not sure that it's still necessarily a, a route into the industry. Um, it's because the industry hasn't changed enough in the way that it hires people. You know, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a conundrum. And, um, I, I feel really mean saying to people there is no definite route in when they're investing thousands of pounds training themselves to go into the industry. But, you know, at least they, they're coming out of those courses now, starting to know what they're doing. I, I don't know so much about the technical side with, um, things like audio and, and lighting. I, I, I don't know much about how the training works with that. But I know that a lot of touring is really about how you get on with people. And that isn't something you're going to get taught at, at uh, college, unfortunately. 
Well, and and probably uh, as you've mentioned already through through this is is an actual love for the industry. Yeah, you've got to love the music. Um, I, I think that there there are benefits, you know, big benefits to touring. If you like travel, if you like earning money, there's plenty of work out there, and there's plenty of travelling to be done. If you ignore the last year, um, but yeah, it's 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 hard it's hard to to know. I wouldn't want to be starting now. I'm glad I started when I did. Yeah, what's uh, what does uh, we're just coming to the end of the, the the episode now? What what is the obviously not the the contracts that you haven't signed, but what are the, what are the projects that you've got in the future that you're really excited about? Well, funnily enough, just this this week, um, I was talking to a, an old friend of mine, a promoter who uh, works in Athens, because um, I'm in Greece, so we're hoping to sail around to Athens and and see her. Um, last year, but we got cut off, as I said, in Kalamata, and we're not allowed to travel from Kalamata to Athens, so we, we caught up on the, on Skype, and she promotes shows in historic sites in Greece, um, like the old ancient, ancient Greek theatres and that kind of stuff, so she's actually asked me to come on board and help her to invite international artists to play in these venues, which is something I'm very excited about. Do you think that might be something that happens in the future? I think, I feel like that, that destination venue could be a, a just a huge, I know people do that already, but I mean, within Europe in particular, it would be so easy just to hop on a plane to, to, to go to the, these historic sites and, and maybe you potentially could do that in a, in a day or, or certainly within 48 hours, um, to see a band in, in, in something historic like in, in, in Athens. Yeah, I think, I think bringing newness in terms of Venues and that kind of stuff is something that will be important in the future. Um, the same old, you know, sort of, um, shows time and time again in the same venues does run out of steam after a while. And I think it's, an artist love to play in these unusual places. You know, the, it's, uh, it's undoubtedly the case. So yeah, I think, um, we'll see how this goes, but, uh, I think it's, it's, it's sort of slightly trespassing on the area of tourism in a way. They're uh, also looking for international audiences to come into Greece to to see these shows. Um, which is a slightly different take on what a show is. But um yeah, I'm just keen to get involved. I just want to do some work at the moment. It's it's just all been theory for a year. <laughs> and it's 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 coming. It, you can almost uh, taste the, the end and um just from from hearing you, you know, it sounds like you're still positive about what, what, what is gonna happen in the future. Totally, I don't see it going away. Uh, I, you know, I, I, music's one of those things that you know it, it feeds the soul, and people's souls need feeding. What else is going to do that? Yeah, um, Chris Tappen, it's been great speaking to you, and um, really hope uh, for the best in the future um, with with all your endeavours. Lovely to speak to you, and good luck to you, and good luck to everyone. Thanks, Chris.